Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com that's not just the sound of that first sip of morning joe it's the sound of someone shopping for a car on carvana from the comfort of home that's a good blend it's time to take it easy like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes talk about starting the morning right just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to episode 384 with my guest Todd G. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod, uh, is mentalpod.com. Uh, I'm sorry. I have slept about a half hour in the last 24 hours. I was doing a mental health, uh, I'm seeing a mental health event up in Sacramento, California, um, and flew back today. And last night I didn't sleep at all before before the event, so um, my brain isn't isn't functioning. Um, my brain isn't functioning as shitty as it normally does. Uh, but uh, the website is uh, mentalpod.com. Uh, mentalpod is also the Twitter handle that you can uh, follow me at. The there's something that I always forget to ask you guys to do that can really help the show is instead of um, just downloading an episode here or there, if you could subscribe and always download episodes, um, that's that's good because that helps um, our numbers and maybe you will listen to an episode that you might not have picked otherwise. So that's a way that doesn't cost you anything. Uh, other than maybe a little room on your phone. Um, 
And as I've mentioned, I'm going to Europe in July to record non-Americans, and I'm so excited about the trip to Ireland and some of the people I'm going to be recording in Dublin and especially in Northern Ireland. I've got some interesting guests who have um, parts of their lives that intersected with the troubles there in Belfast, and it's a, it's a topic that has always fascinated me. And um, I've got some good people lined up, so fingers crossed, hopefully it will go through. And um, as you know, I'm always begging for money for, for the show, and I'm not going to apologize because it's a, it's, it is a f- financial reality, and uh, I'm not going to apologize for it, even though it embarrasses me a little bit. But uh, the budget to go to Europe could definitely use uh, some money, as could the podcast in general. Uh, but I totally understand if you don't have the money, that is totally cool. Totally cool. I don't want anybody to feel guilty. I want to remind you guys that the back catalog of this podcast any episode older than a year is now only available at Stitcher Premium, and you can sign up for $4.99 a month, and you can get episodes going all the way back to the very first episode in 2011. Um, go to MentalPod, uh, I'm sorry, my brain, StitcherPremium.com slash MentalPod, and if you use the offer code MENTAL, you get a month uh, free. And Also, please use the offer code MENTAL because then they know that you are coming from this podcast and then it helps me financially because if you don't use the offer code, they just think you're a random person and there's no point in me putting the catalog there. But it's another financial decision I I had to make and um, I'm not going to apologize for it. There's something else about Stitcher I wanted to mention. Oh, on Stitcher Premium also, there's back catalogs of a ton of great podcasts. There's stand-up comedy albums. It's really, it's a it's a good deal. And this has not replaced Patreon or any of that other stuff. These are just all uh, potential revenue streams that I am having to explore. And there we have it. This is... A survey. I just want to read a couple of surveys before we get to this this episode with my friend Todd. And I edited some portions of this episode, uh, this interview with him out because it first it ran a little bit long, but there were sections of it where he went into some of the paranoia that he was experiencing when he was smoking a lot of meth, but he couldn't really discern what was people out to get him and voices and people targeting him in reality and what was his paranoia. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll release that that edited out portion for um, Patreon subscribers, but I think that the episode as it stands, it is tighter without that part of it. So if you hear him make a reference to voices or people out to get him, that's from the, the part uh, that I I cut out. And yeah, if it sounds like I cut out an important part, it, it's 
it's not necessary to get the what I feel is the core of his story, which is an emotional an emotional journey. All right, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself, I'm just fucking trying. I love it. I love it. About his ADD, he writes, I promise when I saw your text, I thought to get back to you. Oh my God, I have done that so many times. About his anxiety, I know when my belly fills with lightning, you're going to be mad at me eventually. About his compulsive eating, Standing in the dark, staring into space, swallowing another spoonful of peanut butter. I don't know how I got here, but I know it's my fault. You are my new best friend. You are my new best friend. I was talking with somebody the other day, and I don't remember who said, it's my fault. And I thought, that that should really be my headstone. It's my fault. That just would really sum up my most predominant thought in my life on earth. And then ironically, when it was my fault, I didn't think it was my fault. Which got me thinking, why don't people ever get creative with their with their headstones? Some people are in a cemetery. Wouldn't it be nice to make them laugh a little bit? So I was thinking of some some headstones that I'd like to see. Uh, I told you I was clumsy. Uh, they forgot my socks. I guess it wasn't just a rash. And the funeral guy fucked me. The last one might be a harder sell to the family of the deceased, or to the or to the funeral. The cemetery people, you know how cemetery people are. So dour. Busy digging their ditches. This next survey is filled out by a woman who calls herself Pores Are the Enemy, as in P-O-R-E-S. And she writes about her tripo- tripophobia slash skin picking. Sometimes I wish my whole body was covered in burn scars so that my pores would finally be gone and my skin would finally be smooth. And snapshot from her life. I just listened to the episode with Melissa Broder, Paul, and I had to come over and talk about trypophobia. Even listening to Melissa describe the patterns made me begin to scratch. My reasoning for being so terrified is that I imagine the patterns are in my skin and I have to scratch myself smooth. Sometimes, if I have an image of, say, the lotus cluster stuck in my head, I will spend hours picking the skin on my arms, legs, chest, back, hands, and feet. It can really interfere with my sleep and makes me very irritable because I can't concentrate on anything but the intense sensation and impulse to itch my skin. It's as if I can't fill the holes, so I want to pick off the outsides of them so my skin will finally be smooth. Sorry if this is gross slash the wrong survey for this experience. No, it's, I love when people write stuff that the rest of us uh, have never heard before because it helps us better understand each other and, and I find it fascinating. And then she writes, um, once again, begging that when you come to Ireland, you'll do a live interview so I can come and watch. Sorry if I'm being pushy. You're not being pushy. I just wouldn't know how to go about arranging that because I don't, I don't know any venues and 
Ireland. I've never been there. And, um, I don't know how many people would come out and, uh, I wouldn't want to feel the pain of rejection in a different country. Uh, but I, if somebody arranged something, I certainly love it. But, uh, that's not me passive aggressively trying to get somebody to, to do something. But if you have any ideas, um, email me. You can do it through the website. Uh, this was filled out by Siesta, who describes her codependency. It feels like someone is going to pull the plug on grandma, and I'm grandma. <laughs> that one made me laugh out loud when I read it. Thank you for that. Uh, Emily Rose writes about her anxiety. It feels like the cringy reaction your face makes right before you know someone is going to pop a balloon. That is so good. That is so good. Uh, about her OCD. My OCD is OCD about OCD because OCD is not an acronym that falls naturally in alphabetical order. Highlight from her life or a snapshot. Uh, the moment I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety, I wanted to punch the therapist in the throat. I already knew what was happening. I just wanted him to tell me I was normal and everyone felt this way. Uh, this was filled out by... Did I lose the name of this person? Oh, I don't have the name of this person. But I'll read it anyway. Um, they write about compulsive behavior, uh, sexuality OCD, which is a term I believe that they just came up with. I don't, I don't know if that's something that is uh, in the mental health field, but uh, she writes, maybe the reason it took me a decade to accept that I'm a lesbian is because I'm not, question mark, about experiencing sexual bias. I want the D, meaning uh, the dick, in all kinds of ways, but the idea of actually being with a man repulses me. A uh, snapshot from her life. I fear that if I'm in a relationship with a man, I'll give up any control or autonomy entirely, but as a lesbian, I feel independent and strong. Then I worry that my girlfriend, has, girlfriend isn't actually gay because she will not touch me or reciprocate touch. It makes my skin crawl that I'm with her after being treated like this. If it were a man, I'd be long gone. And I wanted to say a couple of things. It's, it's rare that I read something where I have no idea what to, uh, I, where I have, feel like I have zero insight on someone's experience. And this is one where I, I'm reading it because I'm, I'm puzzled by it. And the second thing I wanted to say was there are, uh, LGBTQ focused therapists out there and they can be really really helpful because there there's a lot of therapists out there that don't get gender identity and sexuality uh, or addictions or fear of intimacy a, a lot of things and finding a good one for something that is specific like this i think it would be a great thing for you to check into which, of course, leads me to uh, talk about our sponsor, which is uh, BetterHelp.com. And they do have therapists that specialize in different things. When I searched to find 
my therapist there, I wanted one that dealt with uh, childhood trauma and addiction, and she does, and she's fantastic, and I've been talking to her every Monday on uh, video, and helped me a lot this week, really helping me deal with uh, shame, and every time I think I have seen how low my self-esteem is, someone hands me a shovel. And I dig a little bit deeper, but it's good because I'm finally getting clarity on what people have been telling me forever, which is you're so hard on yourself. You're so hard on yourself. And it's something that I think someone has to feel more than intellectually understand. They have to feel that they're okay rather than just know intellectually that you are enough etc. But if you're interested in BetterHelp.com, check it out. Go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. I highly recommend it. And um, yeah, make sure you go to BetterHelp.com slash mental so they know you came from this here podcast. And then finally, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Wayfaring Taurus. And he just writes a snapshot from his life. Woke up at 5 a.m. with a boner. First time in a very long time. First coherent thought was, well, someone's full of themselves. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get... You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scottface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, it comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> I'm here with my friend uh, Todd G, one of my favorite people in uh, in the world in recovery. <laughs> um, I just love your spirit. I love how much you're of service to people, um, and you're just a good, good man. And um, that's it. That's the interview. Thank you for coming. Well, that's very nice of you to say. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Uh, Todd has one of the more dramatic stories that that I have heard, um, and uh, obviously we'll get into that in a in a bit. Um, but tell me, tell the listener what you were sharing with me as we uh, started getting ready to record here. Sure. Well, so what a day it's been thinking about coming here today. I haven't uh, been super excited. It sounds uh, like that's an understatement. You've been, yeah, dre- you've been dre- let's call dreading. It dreadful. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's call it dreading. Um, uh, but 
wanting to go go forward with it and um you know talk about it um i have come an awful long way so i have to remember that whatever i'm saying here today is way deep in the past and uh the present is quite a different story so with that i feel like i can sit here and um oh not melt yeah uh and also you know that your story has helped other people. Um, I, I had a listener reach out to me that had a story similar to yours, and I said, well, I just happened to know somebody that might be able to relate to you, and you two talked via email. Correct. And that always feels good when I can um, reach out to somebody or somebody reaches out to me, and there's some similarities in there, and I'm not alone. And, you know, I know that in this world I am not alone, but um, with uh, everything that went on and the things that happened shortly afterward, uh, it's certainly easy to feel like the only alien in the room. Yeah. Except for the aliens that were with me. <laughs> of which there were many. Uh what was growing up like? Where'd you grow up? What was the kind of the emotional temperature in uh, in your house? Well, I had a, a, a mostly normal childhood, mm-hmm. you know, a nuclear family. I have five parents, uh, two parents, three step parents. So, you know, pretty normal. Yeah. Um, uh, not a bad childhood. A really loving mother. Um, you know, some family trauma fighting this side, didn't talk to that side for a while, etc. But nothing out of the ordinary. Um, Some minor abuse, uh, not by the hand of uh, my mother or father, but um, distant family members. Mm -hmm. And um, just really a normal childhood. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley here. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to one elementary school, one junior high, one high school, So um, I always had friends. I had a a large social circle. I was never popular, but I was well known. Like Mm -hmm. I, I knew everybody. You're a very gregarious person. Not not popular. I would say that for sure. Um, uh, Acted in drama. You know, I was a solid B student when I would show up to class, Um, and uh, I would say a pretty normal childhood. Okay. are you comfortable talking at all about the abuse that you that you um it mentioned? was um you know now I'll say the word minor because I've kind of come to terms with it, but it was minor sexual abuse mm-hmm. it was a a family member who was i would say about eight or nine years older than me who uh you know some oral copulation that kind of okay. thing okay. Uh, playing tickle mm-hmm. and um that went on from age five to age nine and um uh, ended at age nine. Okay. Um, that that's to me a lot more than minor, but yes, I understand that that that's how you're phrasing it well, now because you feel like you've. It, it was more um, early in my life, uh, and a lot less now because again, I've just kind of come to terms with it, and mm-hmm. um, it's nothing that has ever stopped me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think not at least not like. The events of my forties. Yeah, um, that was very different. Yeah, um, I think I overcame any problems in my childhood because I really did have a good childhood. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like I was deprived of going to Disneyland ever. You know, <laughs> I, I had a good time growing up. 
Yeah. I really did. That's it. I, I did a lot of, you know, uh, extracurricular uh, uh, drug-induced activities. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, uh, again, solid B student, so I always kind of skated by, you know. A little bit of chaos, but I always sort of got by. It's interesting how um, much dark and light somebody's life can have. Oh, for um, sure. How much, and especially with kids, because they're so fucking resilient. They can be in the worst situations and just go out and have a day of playing and laughing and running around. And it seems like by the time we get to our 30s, whatever that that drug is or that coping mechanism, it's kind of gone. Maybe alcohol replaces it. I don't know. Well, in a way, it was like by the end of high school, it was like if if you weren't abused and your parents weren't divorced, something was wrong with you. <laughs> so I kind of felt normal. Uh, and uh, when did, when did the, the drug start? Well, um, age uh, 12 and a half, started smoking marijuana, mm-hmm. you know, and by 13, it was certainly everyday use. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I uh, also dabbled with LSD and, uh, uh, you know, other things in junior mm-hmm. high school. Um, um, really liked acid in, in junior high and high school. That's got, a pretty early age to start doing acid. Well, I agree. Uh, ninth grade, but that's when it was. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, we would go rent a hotel room yeah. so we could all trip. You know, it was, there was... It's a, not a bad idea. A little group of, well... In eh. terms of picking a place to go do it. I suppose so. I, yeah, we're always I've, smart about doing our drugs. I have had uh, one of the worst acid trips I ever had was doing it on a high school bus going on a ski trip. It was an 11-hour bus ride, oh. and there were teachers on it. <laughs> and I started having a bad trip, and it was awful. Yeah. Well, the one thing I always did is I always planned my trips. Yes. I, I never did them. You know, I never took LSD in school. I would take uh, cross tops and black beauties in school. Speed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, I also wouldn't stay past third period. So, <laughs> you know, I would say that I basically didn't do a lot of drugs in school. I did a lot of drugs ditching school. Yeah. Um, uh, somehow, again, I was always able just to squeak by. I'm that guy that that elevator door is closing. It's closing. It's closing. It's closing. <laughs> and then I just squeeze in right there and the, right before it closes and I get in and somehow I, I make it. And I don't know how, but it's always been that. I call it skating by. I've always been able to skate by somehow. Yeah. So, but um, uh, drug use went on, you know, into my 20s, ecstasy and cocaine. Um, uh, when, but, did you, when did you uh, realize you were gay? Oh, well, probably young, probably 8, 9, 10, but uh, really came out uh, 16, 17, and by 18, anyone who was my friend absolutely knew. Yeah. Uh, it took me a little bit longer to come and tell my mother, but uh, by age 20, there wasn't a single person in my life that didn't, didn't know. What were the reactions like? Because this would have been... Early 80s. Early 80s. Yeah. Um, it would have been more difficult had I not had a friend who also was gay mm. and we were kind of in that exploratory time that's nice. so 
you know, um, we kind of had each other to lean. Actually, there were three of us, and we sort of had each other to lean on. You couldn't have picked a more intense time to come out as gay than the early 80s. I mean, Jesus, that's like you just jumped into the middle of a volcano. Yeah, but, you know, I I didn't see it that way. I really didn't. Um, I was the guy that everybody liked. And um, if somebody was uh, extreme... I, I meant because of like the the AIDS epidemic. It's, oh yes, yeah, of course. It's like, of course, the least safe time. Not that it's ever safe to come out completely as, as right. as gay. But right. um, then it was like not only did you, you know, get scorn from society, but uh, you were at risk of getting a HIV, well, which didn't even have a uh, didn't really have any kind of cure. Any kind of any cure. Kind of, yeah, mortality rate was off the charts. Right. But uh, go ahead. You were saying that uh, you um, you I, got along I, with people. I, I and- kind of just went past the stigma. I, I was kind of that guy. If somebody was homophobic and then they found out I was gay, they couldn't understand why they still liked me, but right. they did. Yeah. So in a way, it was almost like. Um, uh, I was doing a service by being gay, and I'm mm-hmm. kind of desensitizing uh, the people around me. Yeah. And somehow, I, that helps, I man. had very little trouble um, where that was concerned. Mm-hmm. And they're like, he's nothing like the guys on the gay pride f- float. <laughs> I just wasn't fabulous. He doesn't dress up <laughs> I really like wasn't, Cinderella. I wasn't fabulous. Yeah. I really wasn't. But, you know, I'd go to the gay pride parade. They were right. great. You yeah. know, it was a lot of fun. Um, I just think people that that don't know LGBTQ people personally just go by stereotypes. Sure. Well, that's what I'm saying. It seemed to me like by me coming out, uh, anybody who had any kind of idea that was wrong about homosexuals kind of broke it because here I am and they were okay with me, you know. So, yeah, we're not all drag queens. <laughs> Nothing bad about the drag queens. I mean, they're awesome. I'm just not one of them. One and, of the most interesting documentaries I've ever seen was Paris is Burning. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, my God, there's this whole other world of the drag competitions. Well, obviously, people now know RuPaul's Drag Race. But, sure. Um, so how did your mom react when you uh, came out? What did you say? Um, she She was okay with it, mostly. I mean... There was a little bit of that, are you sure? And I'm like, Ma, look at me, you know. Um, and my brother, too, it was a little bit of, are you sure? And then back then it was this. It wasn't, um, well, you know, I'm. if I do fall in love, I'm not going to fall in love with a man. I'm not going to fall in love with a woman. I'm going to fall in love with a person. And it really doesn't matter if they're male or female. And I do believe that if the, white, the right woman came around, um, I mean, who knows? Hmm, it's doubtful, but who knows? You never you know. know. Yeah, you, never you know, know. You, I never say never. Dave Holmes uh, was uh, a guest on the podcast, and his mom couldn't accept him coming out. And one day, the phone rings, and he picks it up, and his mom just says, What about a masculine woman? <laughs> that would be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, she just couldn't accept it. Uh, so what's the ne- next um, major the next. chunk in your story. Well, um, so I, I have a pretty good 20s um, in my, nothing really to speak of, uh, uh, no 
long-term relationship or anything, but a lot of friends and a lot of partying and a lot of vacations and a lot of traveling and, um, uh, and I'm, you know, in the middle of my family also. So, I mean, things are good. I'm stable. I'm a stable-headed person, you know. Uh, come my 30s, I, I find that one big love and that's where it all went sour. <laughs> um, true. Um, uh, just a couple of months after I turned 30, I meet uh, a man named John Robinson. And uh, uh, we fall for each other. And within two weeks, we're living together. And he's the person for the next, not quite 12 years, about 11 and three quarter years I'm with. And... Uh, John Robinson was a handful. Um, I really wanted to make the relationship work. And, um, you know, sure, I'm the guy that's smoking pot every 15 minutes. That's true. That's absolutely true. But this guy was more of an alcoholic kind of guy than, you know, that I was used to. He drank all the time. And um, it was Robinson his last name or? Yes. Oh, okay. Because when you said his first and last name, I didn't know if uh, he had two first names. No. Okay. It's, it's not like Christopher Robinson. Right. It's, it's yeah. John Robinson. Okay. It's his last name. Um, uh, we really uh, were together, though. And I had never had a relationship like this before. And he moved in and, you know, I went to his family and he went to my family and we were really together. Um, we bought a house together. We got cats and dogs together. You know, um, everything was the two of us. And, you know, this is somebody who would call me 50 times a day. Hmm. So unstable and needy. And I was the guy that was going to fix him hmm. because, you know, he drank a little too much. And he also had a history of... How could um, this go wrong? I have no idea. <laughs> um a history of uh, methamphetamine use. Mm. Um, and when we first got together, he just dropped it all together. Like, all together. I don't know how somebody does that, but he did that. And for the first six years, uh, seven-ish years, pardon me, seven-ish years of, of our relationship, I would say that he did it 2.1 times a year. And every time he did it, it was a mess. I mean, it was a complete mess. Um, Except for that point one time. Well, the point one time was fine. Even that point one time. I mean, and I, he never, he kept it away from me completely. Like he didn't want to, he didn't want to infect me. Mm -hmm. And I was the guy that was, um, you know, anti-speed. I'm not going to put anything up my nose. I never really liked cocaine. I was more of a hallucinogen kind of guy. Um, I was certainly a pot smoker. I, well, I'll smoke anything to be perfectly honest. I'll smoke your shirt if you'll fit in my pipe. Um, <laughs> But uh, he um, was uh, emotionally abusive. And um, in the 11 and a half years, um, it was always, you know, he always raised his voice and yelled at the waitress and demanded customer service and was just a kind of a mean sort of guy. And, you know, I would try to... I, I, somehow I just sort of felt like I was the only one that um, could talk to him correctly. Because he, you know, mostly talked to me correctly, at least in those first six, seven years. And you um, saw a side to him maybe that strangers that didn't. Other people didn't. And, and you know, he opened up my world in so many ways. I mean, I had never been in love 
ever mm. like this for sure. And um, he just brought to me an entirely different life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a life that we were building that, you know, got bigger and bigger. And, um, you know, even in the fact that, you know, he encouraged me to, you know, buy a better car and go get a house. And, um, you know, the problem with him, though, was he, he, well, there were lots of problems with him. But another problem with him was he overspent all the money. And he ran the credit cards to the, you know, and um, there was so many things that he, um, he would just do without doing it with me. Okay. You know, Let, let's just pause there for a second and ask wh- what's going through your mind during this time, because clearly intellectually you had to know this is not a healthy relationship, but something was keeping you in there. I kept thinking that I was going to change him. Okay. I really do think that I was going to, you know, because it was almost like I was so nice and he was so mean. And so in the middle, we would meet. Mm-hmm. And it was that opposites attract. We had a animal magnetism that, you know, I didn't want to ever let go of. Um, I always sort of thought it would end up okay. But truthfully, it just got worse and worse. And in that seventh year, um, suddenly he picked up his uh, methamphetamine in a way that he hadn't before. And suddenly, every six days the guy was doing speed and it was a real toll Um, so many stories Um, but um, it ended up where can you give us maybe one or two as an example to kind of paint a picture he liked guns I didn't Mm -hmm. and um, he had a thing for guns and um, uh, you know it was okay I wasn't going to tell him not to have a gun I would never tell somebody not to have a gun I personally don't like them for me, but I would never tell somebody else not, and including John. Um, and he, you know, he would go out shooting, he'd go to the shooting range or whatever, and that's all fine. But uh, sometimes he would be so high that, you know, all of a sudden there's a gun in the bedroom. For what? What's the gun doing sitting in the bedroom? Why is it on the frickin' nightstand? You know, um, uh, there was one time where he um, uh, fired it, uh, into the ceiling of our bedroom and I was downstairs and I thought that he had killed himself. It was during an argument. I ran downstairs. Um, uh, well, it's actually, I, so many things ensued before this moment that I ran downstairs and I was, I was worried for his safety before this. And I got on the phone downstairs and I called 911. And I was on the phone with 911 downstairs, and I hear, bang, upstairs. Oh, my God. And I screamed, and I ran up the stairs, and there was John, and he had his head, his, his, he was knelt in front of the bed. We have a bench in front of the bed. He was knelt in front of that bench, and his head was down on the bench. And as soon as I turned the corner in, into the bedroom and I saw this, you know, in that split second, I thought he had killed himself. Yeah. And... Immediately, though, he sat up and my insides went from horror and fright to uh, uh, so happy that he didn't kill himself to terror. He's holding a gun and he just shot it to like, he's, is he going to turn it on me? And I went running down the stairs and running outside and screaming. And um, 
it was pretty horrific. Uh, and it was shortly after that, that, uh, you know, I shook his hand in a way that said, we're, we're done. We're over. Like, I, I can't do this. Um, uh, we had never really broken up before. We weren't the type to break up and get back, break up and get back. You know, we weren't. So when we shook hands and said that was it, that was it. And I moved him out to Las Vegas, and he was gone for um, about eight, nine months. Um, we saw each other a handful of times during that eight, nine months. Uh, we met in Barstow. I was still in love with the guy. We met in Barstow. We'd stay together for, you know, overnight. And then I'd go back to L.A. He'd go back to Las Vegas. And um, what happened was, is he um, found out that he had um, a liver disease and he had to do interferon. And his doctors were out here in Los Angeles. So, of course, I said, come back to the house, come live here again. You know, you can do your interferon treatments. And so I let him back in the house after about a year. Did he have hep C from shooting he, speed? He had hep C. He was also HIV positive. Okay. Um, uh, and, and had he been upfront with you about being HIV positive? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, he uh, moved back to the house. It was the worst thing that I could have done. Um, it was super shortly after that, that, um, he's doing drugs the same way he was doing before talking down to me and all my friends and family, the same way he was before. And I couldn't quite get him out of the house. So, um, we, we moved it to an open relationship, mm -hmm. you know, um, that meant he got to fool around and I got to pretend like I was looking <laughs> <laughs> because I, I never really, it just wasn't the same. And, 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 you know, he would go out every night to a bar, even though he's doing his interferon treatments. Um, and he would, he was the type, he'd argue with the doctors and he'd argue with the, he argued with everybody. He was a, a wreck. And um, we had a bunch of incidents um, over the next three years, four years, um, that... Uh, uh, amounted to the police, you know, showing up at the house, um, crashing cars. Um, uh, I don't think he made one family event in those four years. You know, he'd miss weddings and Christmas and whatever it was. Uh, and um, at any point, did he ever say, I think I have a drug problem? <laughs> no, no, it was everybody else's no. fault. I remember saying to him, you know, why do you have to drink every night? I don't drink every night. I said, John, you drink every single night. You either go to a bar or you have a beer. You always come home with, I don't. Rah, rah, rah. Um, at one point, though, uh, I did get him into a treatment center. And uh, he was in the detox section for, I would say, just a, a hair over 24 hours before he flipped a table and walked out. So, you know, he just was not one for yeah. treatment or... Um, anything like that. So the last year of our relationship, um, I'm trying desperately to break it off with him. And, and he's fighting you or you're fighting? No, we kind of come to terms with it. But, you know, we're still partnered up. Um, we lease a place in Big Bear and um, we move him to Big Bear. 
and um, I have a, a, a dog with him, and he takes the dog, and he used that dog for every, you know, other week to bring the dog to me or ask for the mm -hmm. dog, come get the dog. You know, it was always about the dog. So we were seeing each other still every two weeks or so. Um, but I moved him up to Big Bear, and uh, that didn't work out. And then we moved him down to San Diego, and that didn't work out. Was the hope that he's going to realize he has a problem when he's by himself? Um, at that point, it didn't even occur to me that it mattered. I just okay. needed to get out. I got you. You just needed a break. I like a. I, yeah. I, I was hoping he would meet somebody else. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, because I, I I just didn't know what to do. And you and you felt like I, I, I can't take care of my own needs and just make a clean break. Well, I wanted to still take care of him. Don't get me wrong. You know, he, he was, uh, his health wasn't good, but it wasn't as bad as he would always make it. You know, he was dying every day, every right. single day. And I'm the cockeyed optimist. You know, I'm actually thinking, you know, John, if you can go out to the bar, you must be feeling pretty good. Mm -hmm. You know, um, he just, didn't have it in him mentally to look at anything on the good side. Mm -hmm. And I always looked at everything on the good side. Always. Um, but what happened, I'll just kind of cut to the chase. So he, he was um, living in San Diego and that didn't work out. So he um, was going to move to Apple Valley. Uh, he had a friend who lived there, and she had a guest house, and we were going to move him into the guest house. And he really didn't want to go, really didn't want to go. So the weekend that he's moving from San Diego up to Apple Valley, I am go to uh, Las Vegas with a friend of mine. We have a little four-day time in Las Vegas. Uh, it was somebody's 50th birthday. We're going for this person's birthday. Or I'm sorry, his 40th birthday. This is a long time ago already. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so because I'm not at the house, instead of going to Apple Valley, John comes back to my house and he's there. And um, I'm in Las Vegas and I have this terrible cocaine weekend that it was just the worst cocaine. And we were hurting on my eyes and my nose. And I mean, it was, it was dreadful. It was terrible. And um, I had a really bad weekend. And then uh, hearing from, we had a third roommate. Uh, his name was Conrad, who was also a heavy alcoholic, but at least a nice guy. Um, I heard from Conrad that John was there at the house. And I said, don't worry, you know, I'll come home. We'll move him up to Apple Valley. We'll get we'll get him going. We'll get him going. So um, I came home that Sunday, and this is uh, October first, two thousand six. And um, I get home really early in the morning, and uh, the house is—you couldn't believe it. In the kitchen, it wasn't just food everywhere. There were medical supplies and blood. There were knives. There was—it um, was just upside down. And um, I didn't want to wake up John upstairs. So I kept my suitcase downstairs and I started to clean the kitchen. And I scrubbed that floor. I can picture myself scrubbing that floor for three hours that morning. And um, cleaned up all the medical supplies. There were bandages and gauze and tape everywhere. Is this because he was doing the interferon or shooting up? Um, no. This was 
for a lot of different reasons. Um, finding out later, uh, it was because he was trying to cut off one of his tattoos. Wow. So he was in a state of like complete frenzy, like psychosis big time. Yeah. And, um, which for those who, who don't know is one of the hallmarks of, um, uh, long term cocaine or amphetamine, uh, abuse is when they get high, they no longer get high. They get paranoid they get delusional. They get violent. He um, and Conrad, about a month prior, had decided to go get matching tattoos. Uh, they got dragonflies on their arms. And as a punishment to Conrad, John attempted to cut off his dragonfly tattoo and really tortured Conrad for the day and a half, two days before I got there. Um, anyhow, so I clean up the kitchen, and it really takes... A good three hours. I think I got home at 7 a.m. and by 10:30, um, I hear John coming down the stairs, and I'm just so glad because I'm exhausted. You know, I've had this terrible, terrible weekend. I come home. I know John's there. I just I want to go to sleep. You know, I've been up all night. We left Las Vegas at like three in the morning, and I, I just wanted to go to sleep. So thank God he, he got up. So I grab my suitcase and I go upstairs, and it was about 10:30. About 12.30 in the afternoon, I'm awoken to John at the foot of my bed. And um, he has this uh, broken orange ashtray that was like his mother, his dead mother's uh, most prized possession, you know. And it's in pieces. And it's in a jumbo baggie. And he's just shaking it above me. And that's how I wake up. And he tells me that his landlord in San Diego, he was moving everything out. He had left the bed. He took the ashtray. He put it on a top shelf. They had built-ins. They put it on a top shelf and left it there. He went to put everything in storage, came back for uh, just the bed and uh, whatever little things he left. And he found the ashtray smashed with the ball-peen hammer. So his he thinks his landlord, who he was fighting with because you know he was an asshole and he was fighting with the landlord broke the ashtray in a thousand pieces. And I knew how much this stupid ceramic ashtray meant to him because his mother had passed away and it meant a lot to her. Um, and I got infuriated, just infuriated with John, infuriated with the landlord, mad as hell that I wasn't sleeping, just, just infuriated. And that began a 12-hour argument with John that day um, that included... Uh, so many different pieces. I can tell you so many different incidents about that particular day. Uh, stuff about a sledgehammer, uh, stuff about a fight where we're throwing candy corn at each other, uh, stuff about... Um, What's the sentence for that? <laughs> you bad. only go in jail on Halloween? <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a toothache you'll never forget. <laughs> um, just... Uh, uh, a lot of different things. And I actually end up, uh, uh, when I kind of lose it a few months later, write a song about this last day. It's like an anthem. And I, it remembers all these little pieces of the argument. Anyways, um, so the day ended um, about 9.45 that night with um, him 
John calling me out to the backyard and he had a gun to his head and he, as soon as I got out there, blew his brains out right in front of me. I see the light on the gun. I see this body going down. I, uh, it's chaos. You know, it's, he's, the brains are all over the, the lawn. Uh, it's crazy. And I went absolutely nuts. And I remember, and now it's so odd because some people say, you know, like you have a certain trauma and you, you block the whole thing out. You forget everything. Just the opposite. I can tell you about every second that happened that last day. I mean, I could literally tell you every little bit of the argument that we had for that 12 hours. And I can tell you every little moment that happened after he shot himself with that gun. And I went running through the house, just pushing over the lamp and, and just beating up the wall and just, you know, and going back outside and being over his body and screaming and screaming. And his, um, his body was uh, convulsing like an accordion, just like, oh, 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 and just, and, and I didn't know what to do. And I knew, the only thing I knew was not to touch him. I knew not to touch him. And that was so painful. I, I, I don't like guns. And I knew to stay away from what had just happened because it had nothing to do with me. I didn't have anything to do with it and I didn't want to muddy it up. And I, you know, so I, I ran through the house, like I said, beating up the walls and pushing over the lamp. And I screamed up at Conrad and Conrad had a friend over actually, and they were barricaded in their room. And I screamed. Why, were, why were because of all the arguing or yeah, what? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I screamed, you know, uh, he had a gun, he had a gun, call 911, call 911, call 911. Well, John had hid all the phones before he did this. So we couldn't find any telephone to call 911. They were all off the, off the bases and just hidden. Um, so I go running down the driveway. I'm screaming at any neighbor that would hear, you know, call 911. He just shot himself. He just shot himself. Call 911. And, um, a neighbor came running to my front gate and he saw my eyes and I, I could picture him looking at me and he went and, uh, you know, I'm sure him and a lot of other neighbors, you know, called 911. And um, Conrad uh, was, you know, downstairs screaming at this point, but Conrad couldn't even go look at him. He went into toward the driveway instead of toward the backyard. Um, and uh, I screamed at Conrad, you know, call my mother. He he called my mother um, uh, from the neighbor's phone. And um, uh, she actually got there before the paramedics. Um, I knew John was dead. The paramedics came and the police came and... Um, they went into the backyard to work on him. Um, and somehow they brought him back. So the paramedics picked him up and took him to the hospital. But I saw what happened. There was no bringing this guy back. He blew his brains out in front of me. I saw his brains go out, exit his head. And... Um, I'm so sorry that you... That you 
it, it, you know, it's, it, 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 it's hard to talk about like this in such detail. I've, I've obviously, you know, told the story, but I don't remember each moment. Well, I do remember each moment. I just don't talk about each moment yeah. very often. Um, uh, oddly enough, though, shortly after it happened, I had to tell everybody everything. I had to tell the lady at the bank. I had to tell the lady in the market. Every friend that I've ever had. I mean, I just needed everybody to know. And of course, people would be like, oh, what can we do for you? What can we? I said, you just did it. I just want you to know. It probably just, saved you, huh? Just want you to know. It was, I don't know why, but I just had, you know, and I didn't tell every single, it, depend, it, it depended if you were in the room during a time where one of the stories of the day came out, you know, whether you got to hear it or not. Obviously, for the next three days, my house was packed full of people. And um, anyways, the paramedics took him away. The police questioned me. Um, another set of police came. They took me aside. They questioned me. And that was it. Nobody ever else asked me another question about it because it was obvious what happened by the way he was on the ground and I guess powder it, powder burns on his fingers. I I'm suppose sure. so. Yeah. I don't even, you know, yeah. I don't even know. Um, uh, so many things though. Too when I say you remember every incident, mm -hmm. you know, I know the police are coming. So I take my dog who weighs 115 pounds and I literally put him in my arms and I walk him up to the bedroom and I throw him in there. I don't want the dog barking at the police. I don't want them shooting my dog. And actually, the dog was out in the backyard with John when I came down the stairs and that's what I saw first. I saw the dog and I opened the sliding glass door and I screamed at Bruno. I said, Bruno, get in here. And Bruno comes in, he walks right, and just as he walks by me, that's when John shoots himself. You know, and it, so many people, all my friends, all my family, it was always, it was this, this is what I heard constantly. Thank God it wasn't a murder suicide. And I agree. Thank God it wasn't a murder-suicide. However, it, it just... I was never afraid for my own safety when I saw that. I, it's almost like... I mean, it, it only took a moment, but like so many things happened in that moment. So many feelings happened Talk about that. all at the same time. You know, fright, fear, sadness, um, uh, anger extreme anger, uh, worried for the dog, so worried for the dog. He's out there playing with a gun and my dog's running around. You know, um, uh, confusion, um, horror, though, just an overlay of horror. Uh, when the paramedics took him away and then the police left, my mother said, uh, we have to go to the hospital. And I said, no, I'm not going. And Conrad said, Todd, we have to go to the hospital. And I said, no, I'm not going. And my mother said, I'm going to the car and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to wait for you. We have to go. And Conrad and I sat in the... Gosh, darn it. Oh, Conrad and I sat in the entryway and... We were just silent, and we just sat there. I wasn't going to go. He wasn't going to leave me. I wasn't going to go. And we literally, for five full minutes, which seemed like an eternity, stayed in that entryway, speechless, 
didn't say a word. And I just let go. I just acquiesced. Let's go to the hospital. I went I dragged my head the whole way. What? Something about those moments, though, in the entryway really was a game changer. Yeah, because you got, you got choked up right there. What, yeah, well, specifically, I've, I know the whole thing would choke anybody up, but it seemed like that moment touched something in you. I what could just you think? feel myself standing at the stairs. I can feel, my, feel Conrad standing at the front door, and there was nothing to say, and we said nothing. We just said nothing, and I just didn't want it to be true, and I didn't want to go to the hospital. He had just died. I knew he was dead. Why was I going to go to the hospital? But my mother's in the car. <laughs> and Conrad's not leaving me. And so I, we, okay. And you're go. a people pleaser. Come on. And I'm a it doesn't matter. people pleaser. Yes. Right. I'm a good guy, remember? Yeah. Um, and so uh, we walk to the car and we go to the hospital and we get to the emergency room. And I was like still and in shock. And Conrad was like, oh, 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 just, just a complete raving crazy man. And um, we go into the front and uh, there's the nurse's station. And Conrad runs to the front and he's, you know, saying, John Robinson, John Robinson, John Robinson. And I have to go, you know, we're here for John Robinson. And they say, um, okay, um, hold on a second. And he comes back, you know, 20 seconds later, and he goes, okay, well, he is alive. And Conrad screams, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. But you know. I just turned around, and I walked to the window, and I sobbed. I just sobbed. And I could feel myself standing on the cold window, just crying. And then social person comes out, and they take me and Conrad, you know, to the back. And what, I, what, what was it? that allowed you to release the sadness in that moment. Uh, he's alive. He he wasn't alive. I knew. I knew. I saw it. Um it just for you know Conrad thought that it was going to be okay in that moment. I knew it wasn't going to be okay. I couldn't talk. I was just choked. They're telling me he's alive. <sighs> Somebody comes out the back and brings us into some back room, some room without windows. This is where they put the, the you know, the, the family of... This is where the shitty news like gets this. delivered. Right. However, I'm not going to sit in a room without any windows. I'm going crazy as it is. I'm too sad. I can't handle it. I can't stay in there. And I get up and I just walk out. And as I walk out, I see way down the hall, my mother talking to a nurse and um, come to find later, you know, the nurse is saying, there's no chance. There's no chance. I go outside. Everybody goes outside. We're all sitting outside. People start to show up. His brother and sister-in-law show up. Uh, my stepfather shows up. My, um, my friend that I was in Vegas with, uh, a friend for like 25 years, called him. He, he shows up. We're waiting and we're waiting. And uh, uh, about 10 minutes to midnight. And he had shot himself about 9.45. So about 10 minutes to midnight, uh, they come out and they say to me, you know, 
do you want to come in and, you know, see him? Uh, and I say, yes. And they say, you can bring one person, bring someone with you. And I say to his brother, Bill, come with me. You know, so the two of us, we go back there. We go into a room and he's uh, on the table and he has all kinds of tubes and everything all over him. And um, there's a whole fleet of doctors and nurses in the room. And I walked in and I literally felt like like I like like there was this light and his mother was there and I felt like John's mother was there and I went up to him and I said to the the nurse asked me um uh does he have a do not resuscitate or is he and we both filled out DNRs and we we he was a do not resuscitate and so they were going to take the tubes out yeah um and there was a little commotion about that because they didn't actually have the paperwork. But there he was suffering right there. And I was saying, he, he's a DNR. He's a DNR. And um, they decided to, without seeing the paperwork, mm -hmm. take my word on it. And I know that's what John would want. I, I absolutely mm -hmm. know it. And um, they uh, turned off the life support. And um, I grabbed him, and I had my face right next to him. And the whole time I said, Todd loves John, 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 over and over and over and over and over again. And I felt like his mother came down, and I felt like she brought her hand to his, and I could, I could just feel her in the room. And I know, I know she was there with us, and I know that she helped him get out of that room. And it took no time at all um, uh, before he was dead again. So he dies again. He dies at uh, like 10 minutes after 12. So although every he dies on October 1st, he also dies on October 2nd. That's just greedy. That's terrible. <laughs> well, it even gets worse than that. So he dies on October 1st. But October 1st, 2006, that night, happened to be the night of Yom Kippur, the holiest night of the Jewish year, the night we fast, the night we atone for our sins, and he kills himself on Yom Kippur. So he created an October 1st anniversary, and he created a Yom Kippur anniversary, because Yom Kippur is not on October 1st every year. Right. So the time between October 1st and Yom Kippur is like my time of atonement yeah. every, every year since. Um, sometimes Yom Kippur comes before October 1st, sometimes it comes after, but he created two anniversaries and October 1st and October 2nd. Mm -hmm. Um, I watched him die on October 1st in front of me at our house. To me, that's when he died. But on his birth her death certificate, mm -hmm. it's October 2nd. Anyhow, um, everything went wild after that for Todd, uh, I can't say that I got to skate by anymore. I can't say that I was a good person anymore. I can't say that any of the things that I had in my teens and 20s and 30s growing up, uh, I, they, he didn't just kill himself. He killed my job. He killed my family. He killed our relationship. He killed my home. He killed everything. 
and he certainly killed my ability to handle whatever drugs or marijuana or alcohol I was drinking. I couldn't handle any of it. You mean and, in moderation? Ooh. Yeah. So. I mean, it had always kind of been a solution, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, my idea to medicate after he had killed himself um, just went wild. Had anybody suggested uh, counseling for you? Oh, my God. Are you kidding? Everyone demanded counseling for me. And? Um, and the very next day, they do take me to Kaiser to see a counselor. And it was like like a, you know... They made some recommendations. I think they gave me Xanax. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's a grief group. We meet once a week. Come on down. You know, I, and I, to me, trauma. It, everything need... was wah, 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 yeah. wah. It didn't matter what anyone really said. Um, Nobody recommended like EMDR or any type of trauma thing? Not really. They knew that you had witnessed it, right? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Grief counseling or Xanax, how somebody really could think that that is going to help somebody. I mean, I'm not a therapist, but holy fuck, that, yes, you might need that in addition to these other things. Well, but anyway. As you can imagine, the whole family is completely beside themselves, and it, nobody really knew what to do. So what they did was anything. And if they said Xanax, Xanax, you know, if I needed to smoke pot in front of my mother, smoke pot in front of your mother, you know, I mean, what, whatever it was. Um, and I did, I, I medicated, I didn't know what else to do. I, I, I just didn't know what else to do. Give me a typical day post Oof. this event. Well, huh. um, gee, well, the first two weeks are different than the rest of it. Okay, give me a, the, give me a day from the first two weeks, and then a typical right, well, day the, from the rest the of it. The first two weeks are um, uh, it takes fourteen days to have his service and um, uh, have him. Uh, uh, so I had people in my house all the time, and um, you know everyone brought food. Had, and why did why did you sk skip over that to have him? Well. If you don't want to talk about that, it's fine, but no, I was it's just okay. curious. Um, you know, so he was at the mortuary, and um, uh, they, uh, you know, have a viewing uh, before the um, service. He was to be cremated, so it was going to be viewing and then cremation and then service. And um, only myself and one other person came to the viewing. Nobody wanted to see him. Um, me and his friend who lived in Apple Valley, she wanted to go. So the two of us went. And actually, when I realized that nobody was going to go, it, it almost was a sacred moment. I, I, you know, didn't want anybody to go. Um, but, uh, you know, they had him wrapped in a shroud and, um, they had his head tied up because I'm sure there was a gaping hole on the side. And, uh, you know, I just remember holding him, putting my face next to him and just holding him and knowing that whatever bad he did, he also did good. And nobody was going to ever remember that, um, that 
though he was a braggart, he was very good at some of the things that he did. <laughs> he was very artistic. Um, he was very good to me at many, many times. Nobody was ever going to remember that. Um, Would it be fair to say that you could see the wounded little boy in him? Oh, for sure. Talk about that. I had so many baby pictures and pictures of him as a little boy. Um, he was uh, a foster child. Um, he was very sick for the first two years of his life. Um, he, there was a lot about John that I really felt for. I don't want to say feel sorry for, but empathize along those lines. And, um, you know, I, I desperately didn't want to base my whole 12 year relationship on the last 12 hours of his life. And I didn't want to base his entire 44 years on the last 12 hours of his life. And nobody was on board with me. (laughs) Nobody. All I kept hearing was, well, I'm just so glad it wasn't a murder-suicide. In other words, I'm glad he's gone and that you're still here. That made me a little crazy. That made me take a few extra Xanax. (laughs) What, What, to somebody out there who has to console somebody, what would an appropriate thing be to say? You know, I don't know what is appropriate in this situation because people are going to react. But maybe just hugging somebody. Yeah. You know, you don't always have to offer your opinions of how good or how bad somebody was. You just have to be there for the person. Yeah. You know, and I heard a lot of opinions about how horrible he was. And it really... You know, it made me just want to isolate. Didn't didn't make me want to be with my friends or my family. Um, made me want to go to my solution, get the biggest and best drug that I could, and check out. And I wasn't about to commit suicide because this had happened to me. And I knew what it felt like. And I would never, ever consider doing that to my mother or any of my family or any of my friends. I would never even consider it. But... The drugs that I was doing, you know, brought me to the edge of death. And I didn't even see it. I didn't know it. I really kind of lost myself in the next few months. Um, uh, this happened on October 1st. By the end of the year, I lost about 60 pounds. Wow. Uh, I didn't speak to any of the people that were at that funeral. Uh, my brothers were afraid of me. They wouldn't bring the kids around. They didn't want the kids to see me like this. Um, my mother would help me, but stay away from me. Um, and you know, she had a bunch of friends that were trying to push her into like a tough love kind of situation for me. You know, uh, he has to hit bottom kind of thing. And, um, thank God she never abandoned me. She really didn't. Um, so... When I say I had to look for a bigger and better solution, you know, I had to look for a bigger and better drug. Uh, Smoking pot every 15 minutes wasn't going to cut it. So I called uh, his friends that I thought perhaps he was getting his drugs from and told them, you know, what had happened. And, hey, do you got anything to help me out? And um, I started uh, smoking crystal meth uh, on a daily, no, make it hourly. No, wait, make it minutely basis. 
Wow. I was smoking it. I mean, I probably took 140 hits in a, you know, in a 16 hour period in a, in a 16 hour day. And, um, typically what, what would an average recreational, I don't know if there are recreational uh, meth users. I don't think exactly. What would, let's say somebody, the, the first, the average person, cause I, I never smoked meth, but let's say the average person, it's their first month of smoking meth, maybe their fifth or sixth time doing it. How many hits would they take in a, in a oh day? God. Um, geez, I don't know. Uh, uh 10. Okay. Let's say 20. Okay. You know, maybe. Because right. I didn't know if it was something where two hits and you're up for a week or... Well, yeah, yeah. two hits and you're up for a week kind of thing. Okay. Um, I got so up that I was like, you know, beyond the stars up. Um, did you feel good? Or was it just no, that you felt it was, better? Mm, I didn't feel good or better. But Different. I did realize that there were times where, oh, hey, I didn't, I'm not thinking about John Robinson right now. That was it. I mean, I remember the first time that a whole hour went by that I went, I didn't think about him at all. You know, so I actually thought that I was doing myself a service because I had so much PTSD, you know, immediately at, after this. Um, I would, my the, the way PTSD would show up on me is like I, I could be standing there and everything would be fine. And then, you know, I'll say I'm doing the dishes. I'm standing there doing the dishes, just doing the dishes. <laughs> and then just doing the dishes, just doing the dishes. That's all, just doing the dishes. And that's, it would happen all the time. It would be like a just a jerk and a, uh, you know, uh, uh, and if I was in front of people, you know, it was bad. So I would try to control it. Like I, I, I was always jumping, always just jumping. Um, whether I was doing my drug, well, I, there was never a time I wasn't doing that drug shortly right. after that. But, um, you know, whether I was high out of my head or not, um, I experienced uh, extreme PTSD and uh, waking up in the middle of the night screaming and, um, you know, Conrad was experiencing some of these same things too. So I would hear him scream and I'd start to scream and we'd, you know, uh, and we were staying away from each other. And, um, oh gosh, it, it was, uh, it was so terrible. Um, you know, I woke up, uh, one morning and I just had forgotten about it for 15, 20 seconds. I don't know. I'd forgotten about it. Like I woke up and I just got up out of bed and I, then all of a sudden I remembered and I literally just fell face down onto the floor. And, um, you know, it was traumatic is putting it lightly. I mean, it was just, I don't, I can't imagine. I, I, I experienced it and I can't imagine. I experienced it and I can't imagine. Um, and then I did a lot of things you know, while I was on, uh, in isolation on these drugs, uh, I found myself, um, carousing the internet and, um, there was a website, which I'm just going to leave nameless, but there was a website, it was a webcam society. And somehow it, it took a lot of events to actually get to this place, but I found myself in a room where there were guys that were smoking meth on camera, having sex on camera, and, you know, hooking up with each other. Mm -hmm. And um, 
uh, and it's a place on the web that you can't get to. And somehow I got to it first, you know, nothing innocent about this, but innocently through like a Yahoo chat room mm -hmm. to a place where, you know, they send you a link and they invite mm -hmm. you here and, you know, you, you end up down in the deep dark web and nobody else can get there, you know, except for you and your link. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and actually for the first couple of months, it seemed to be going well, you know, I it was comforted uh, you in some way. Well, I had no other friends. So I had these people and, and it was um, safe because you could just log off. Exactly. If things got too overwhelming. But I'll tell you the truth. You know, if you're going to do drugs and be naked on the internet, do yourself a big favor. Don't show your face. And how many days in a row would you typically be up smoking meth? Oh, I, I would say nine days, nine <laughs> days awake, um, two days of sleep, one day of eating, and then nine days awake. I, I would I mean, say that that was the for about two and a half years. But um, I was so pissed at my friends and and my neighbors and the guys on the internet they wouldn't let me get to my email and i was just so mad at everybody that one day i decided that i was going to get up on the roof of my house and it was a early morning and i was in my boxer shorts and well first of all i thought somebody was tampering with the roof because i yeah. saw little blue little blue pieces of rubber on the on the roof and I wanted to know what those were. So I climbed up there and I, it was like this sticky little rubber stuff. I didn't know what it was, but I was sure that, you know, my neighbors had come up here and put something up there so they could see what I was doing. Probably not, but that's what I was sure of. And um, I got up there and I was so mad at the world that I started screaming. I started yelling at all the neighbors. I started telling all those people exactly what they were doing to me. And I was saying, and I'm a good guy. I'm a nice Jewish, you know, I was just a, like a saint. Why would you do this to me? And I'm screaming and screaming and screaming. And I hear uh, about three houses away, there's some kids playing. And I hear this little girl s scream out. She says, you're crazy, meester. <laughs> and I just went to the very edge of the roof and I just started pointing and pointing and screaming at the girl. And I was saying, you're crazy. You're crazy. And your parents are crazy. And how dare you? And screaming and mm, a few minutes later six policemen <laughs> come walking up my driveway all in formation and asked me to come down off the roof and i instead of going to the edge of the roof i went back to the you know to the very top and i said to them am i doing anything illegal said no you're not doing anything illegal but we'd really like it if you you know came down up you know nice as pie these policemen nice yeah. as pie until they got their hands on me and got me off the roof and put me in the back of their patrol car and promptly brought me to the funny farm my first 5150 uh at a um you know a hospital downtown and uh yeah the problem was nobody would believe me that that all these people were preying on me. And I understand because I know how it sounds. You know, I know how it sounded then. I know how it sounds now. I can qualify it over and over why it was true. But I can understand it completely why people would think that it isn't. Yeah. 
So, you know, I'm a model citizen in the hospital, of course, because they don't let you smoke and do drugs in these hospitals, you know. You only get to do that if you get out. So I'm a model citizen. I groom and I eat and I do their little classes and I, you know, do anything that they ask me to do. And um, I get out and uh, I go right back to what I was doing. And this was a cycle that happened uh, for two years. I was probably on eight or so different 5150 situations. Um, and would you experience the threats while you were ooh, 5150? Yes. Okay. The society coming after you? Yes. Okay. Um, uh, there were times where it was uh, fine. Uh, and there were times where I could tell who was the mark, who was the person in there that was there to watch to watch me or to report mm. or to, and it was very paranoid. Okay. Very, very paranoid. Um, I will say though that uh, I didn't have any other choice but to keep on using. I really didn't know what to do. Um, you know, even when I went for uh, uh, help, they, you know, what they did is they gave me drugs. <laughs> they gave mm. me Xanax. And so I really thought that that was, you know, like the only solution. And, uh, when you go in a lockdown situation, um, uh, they bring it, people from the outside to come in and talk to you. And during one of those hospital stays, a um, a panel of uh, the support people, group people, yes, mm -hmm. came and um, uh, basically told me that I didn't have to be this way anymore. Um, but not telling me for me, they told me their own story. Um, how they had overcome drugs and alcohol and um, uh, were living. They weren't just saying that they were sober and clean. What they were saying was is they had happy lives. Their family was there. They had jobs. They had, you know, mm -hmm. their, uh, a new car and a nice house and friends and, you know, all the things that I used to have um, and gave me an alternate solution, something else to think about. And, um, you know, I did come out of one of those hospital situations um, looking for that support. And that was kind of the beginning of my uh, transformation back into life. It was hard. And I was really addicted, like super addicted. You know, you just don't put that down. Yeah. Um, and uh, so slowly but surely, I figure out a way to get back to my connection with God instead of, you know, my connection, you know, down the street selling right. me my drugs. Um, I, you know, I get to a different place of spirit. You know, like I say, I, I find a different, a stronger, uh, better, more clear spirituality. Um, and uh, not in a religious way in any way. Right. Um, just a connection. And it changes my life it uh I've seen it brought seen me it. to a place where you know they talk about uh surrender mm -hmm. and um you know i thought if i didn't smoke meth for three days i was surrendered but that's just <laughs> you know not quite the case um uh i did a lot of things wrong you know um but the one thing that i did is i believed in 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 these people because they were showing me their lives were were working 
and the um, support group people and i came back you know i kept coming back mm-hmm. and um after just under three years something just changed and i started doing what they were doing and i just kind of gave up you know i i realize now that a surrender a real surrender is uh not having a reason or an excuse or um uh yeah but um, sure, I will. I know I should. Uh, trying, you know, trying to control the form in which help comes to you is, yeah, is exactly. to me, one of the most obvious forms of not surrendering. Just standing yeah. in the way. Yeah. You know, get out of the way, Todd. Get out of the Please way. Please help me, but let me show you how I want you to help me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Controlling every second of that. Yeah. And I, I just somehow stopped that. And, um, you know, suddenly I was, like, not calling the connect, you know, and uh, not going for the bottle and not on the roof, just feeling different. Yeah, I hadn't had a 5150 thing go on for a little time. And And did you make up with the little girl? You know, I never did. And, you know, I'm sure she's about nine. So she's probably about 19 now. Mm -hmm. I wonder if she, you know, still thinks I'm Mr. Crazier. (laughs) Anyways, uh, I, uh, get to a place of surrender, real surrender, where I'm able, you know, I don't have any kind of craving or obsession, and I'm feeling good. I have about 26 days of this going on. I'm actually going to hit 30 days, and I know it because just something's different. And, um, you know, it didn't, my mind still talked to me, but it said positive things. So it was saying different things. And, uh, I've been a cigarette smoker since I'm 14 years old, a pack and a half of Marlboro Red every single day. And um, I uh, am having a cigarette uh, my 26th day of this newfound sobriety that I have. And my mind says, Todd, you don't need those cigarettes anymore either. And I guess I really had surrendered. And I proved it to myself because I made no excuse and no effort to get in the way. I was told the right thing by God or by whatever it was. Todd, you don't need those cigarettes anymore. And rather than say, um, oh, yeah, I really shouldn't smoke anymore. You know, when this pack is over, I'm never going to buy them again. And, you know, uh, uh, January 1st. January 1st is right around the corner. And I'm not going to ever smoke again. I'm making that resolution. And maybe maybe my friend will quit with me. We can support each other. I know she doesn't want to smoke. Let's just support each other. Well, you know, I'll go get Shantix. And then, you know, I, none of those things came in my head. None of those things. Uh, Todd you don't need those cigarettes anymore. And my hand just went right to my shirt pocket. I pulled those cigarettes out. I broke them, about 18 cigarettes. I threw them in the trash. And somehow, by some miracle, I have not had a cigarette since. I didn't wean myself off. I didn't, uh, uh, you know, try to quit. The right thing was put in front of me, and I was just able to do it. And um, I'll tell you, for about uh, six years and a couple of months... I haven't had a drug or a drink or a cigarette. Um, and then more than that, I see you show up at these support groups and really be of help, really be present and have a passion for it that is not all that common. And um, it, that to me is the true sign of recovery because I know people that no longer do drugs or drink and they're miserable cocksuckers because yeah. they're not 
they're not I'm certainly not changing miserable. the way they live besides the drugs and alcohol. Well, I'll tell you, at first, I was of service because I was told that I needed to be of service, that I needed to to do this. So are they, but you did it. Well, I did because I know from that very first panel of people coming in and telling me that their lives were working, that I found out that there might be another solution. If I could carry that same message just in my actions, you know, uh, not pointing my finger at people and telling people how, you know, good I am, um, just by the way I live in the world, uh, then... You know, it's hard to say this, but then it all was worth it. I don't really know. You know, it's funny because if... Or at least it's uh, not for naught. It's not for naught. That's much better. I just can't imagine what was going through his head. And I'm lucky that I don't think about it all the time. But I thought about it a lot today because I knew I was going to talk about Mm -hmm. it today. And would I trade now for that not happening? I don't know. You know, part of me wants to say absolutely. But everything is a blessing and everything has uh, a, a reason for... And I have to live in the, in the reason for. <laughs> I have to live in the place where I have love for my, my fellow man and that I have to share this in a way where it's helpful and not hurtful. Did you ever get uh, help for your PTSD? Well, um, there was a time where I was seeing my psychotherapist 90 minutes a day, or 90 minutes a session, three days a week. You know, then it got down to 60 minutes, of course, Mm -hmm. and um, it got down to once a week. Um, Then it got down to every other week. Then it was uh, 60 minutes uh, once a month. And today, I still see that same psychotherapist, um, but I see him once a quarter, every 90 days. And I basically go just because I feel like I owe it to him for sticking with it with me <laughs> and to check in with me. And, and you know, I, I'm i almost wondering if, you know, the man wrote a book about this while it was going on because <laughs> it was amazing. I would sit in his office and channel these different voices and, you know, he... He knew something spiritual was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, today when I come in there and all we talk about is helping people and uh, my place in the family and how I'm doing at work and how I take care of the house or my friends or any little, any piece mm-hmm. of my life. Um you know, he just, I'm his success story. I, I know I'm his success story in his mind. That that you are. Um, so was this as, as bad as your dread? A little bit. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> no, not, not that bad. Um, not that bad. I really, really appreciate you coming uh, to do this because um, I can't imagine how hard it must be to go back in and and talk about this stuff um and it was a very nice gesture on your part to come do this because you knew 
I, I wanted the listeners to, to hear your story. And, um, that, that means a lot to me. Well, I, I appreciate you and what you do for people. And I want to do my part also. And, uh, uh, digging into the suicide and digging into the, the stuff on the internet. Um, you know, I know, I know how, how hard it was, but I know that people sit in their own skin and whatever their paper cut is that makes them go off the deep end. I just want them to know that, uh, there's always a way out. There's actually a way out, you know, and where um, you can still stay alive, where you can still stay alive. You can cope. You could put your obsession to this, to the side and you can have a whole brand new life. I would never think that, you know, I could smile, uh, you know, today I'm in a relationship. Um, I'm like, a, you know, I, I, I just, I'm in life. I'm in the middle yeah. of life. And, uh, boy, was I on the outskirts. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's an understatement. Yeah, it really Todd, is. Thank you so much, man. I love you. I love you too. Thank you for being here. It's, it's so nice to have friends like Todd that, you know if you were in crisis and you called them that they would they would come and uh that always makes me feel a little safer in my life and for me that that's what i got from or get from being in in support groups i used to have this idea that i have to go through life alone and figure it all out myself and while independence is good um it's also nice to know that if there are things that happen beyond my control then I have people that love me and care about me and uh, who wouldn't let me suffer boy I got heavy right out of the fucking gate <laughs> I need to go to sleep I'm going to read a couple of surveys first though this is an awful some moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Prince and she writes my sisters and I were all sexually abused when we were young by a man who was a leader in our church. Uh, in the parentheses, it was more like a cult, but that's for another time. All four of us were sitting eating our fast food during a road trip when it was brought up that we never got fast food when we were young unless it was from this man. My sister referred to it as him whining and dining us and the idea of some monster buying a shitty bean burrito from Taco Bell as a bribe for molestation was so fucking pathetic that it made us laugh until we cried. It took over a decade for us to share our abuse with each other, and laughing about it felt good, even though I was a little nauseated after. That, that, those are the kind of moments that are so healing, at least for me, those, those moments that it's... Like some of the some of the weight comes off. It certainly doesn't take it away, but um, this is filled out by Kelly. This is a struggle in a sentence, and she writes uh, about her OCD. A snapshot from it. Uh, a snapshot of my magical thinking. Don't think too negatively about a desired outcome, or it will come true. Don't think too positively about it, or that one won't come true. The only true way for something good to happen is to feel genuine apathy with zero expectations about everything that's happening. Never letting anyone speak in absolutes for fear it is automatically going to trigger the opposite effect. 
what a great example of black and white thinking at the heart of a mental illness battle. You know, that, that to lower your expectation about something in life, you have to have zero expectations uh, about it. Because I think lowering expectations can be a healthy thing, but having zero expectations, um, I think sometimes might be a little extreme. I don't know, at least for me. Because I find if I don't have any expectations of other people, then I keep people in my life that aren't healthy for me, who uh, reinforce the idea I have that I'm not worthy of love. This woman calls herself single mom, and it's better that way. And about her anxiety, she writes, whatever I'm doing or thinking, my mom is about to give her opinion. (laughs) I know that one made people laugh out loud. A woman who calls herself, maybe I'm not trying hard enough, writes about her depression. I want to be anywhere else but also nowhere at all. That one blew my mind. That one blew my mind. This is a teenager, too. I've said before, there is um, a gift sometimes that teenagers, especially teenage girls, have with this struggle in a sentence survey. Um, maybe maybe it's all the uh, the poetry they're writing Uh, after school, but I want to be anywhere else, but also nowhere at all. That captures in so many ways that feeling of depression that it's, it's like a Mobius strip or an MC Escher painting where it, where does one begin? Where does the other end this? How can these two things possibly be existing at the same time? And where, where do they connect? It's, it's a conundrum. But as I like to say, nobody understands me like my bed. Nobody. My pillow, my best friend. About her sex addiction, if you do what they want, then they won't let go. Let you go. About her codependency, my best friend told me that most friends usually talk only once every few weeks to catch up. My heart has broke more and more every day for the past two years, knowing I care about her more than she cares about me. And the reason I wanted to read this was th- this and and the uh, love and sex addiction. Um, it, when we're lost in that codependency and that addiction to validation from sex or somebody being in love with us, um, it's like it, it's in an enmeshment that. We believe that it's about us caring about that other person, but at its heart, it's really not because we're objectifying them in a way, because we're looking for them to fill something in us rather than taking them as they are and not trying to change them or manipulate a situation into them being different 
so that we can get our needs filled. We should fill our own needs and they can add to what's great in our life, but we should be the ones that are fulfilling our emotional needs. And obviously kids growing up, that's, that's not true. Their parents should, uh, help fulfill those needs. But as, as we, um, what's the word that therapists use? Individuate and become adults. It's, it's really easy to not see how we can objectify other people. We always think that it means just sexually objectifying people, but no, you, people objectify people and this person is going to rescue me or, uh, this person is going to keep me from ever feeling sad again or being in debt. And that's, that's reducing someone to a thing that fixes you. And again, it's, it's like that. It's, there's so many gray areas because a partner should obviously be there for us and we should be able to lean on them. But where, then where does it tip into codependence? And that's why we need therapy and support groups because this shit is complicated. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, I don't know who I am. And she writes, uh, I'm not sure if this is really awful. My father came to our house randomly after he and my mother got divorced. He was waiting outside and sat me down on our porch. He told me the years of abuse was because his stress from work, he was a truck driver. My mouthy self looked at him and told him using work as an excuse for demeaning, ignoring, and physically harming his children wasn't acceptable. The only person he ever seemed to remotely love in the home was my mother. The rest of us he put up with because she loved us. He just sat there silently. My brother, who has a different father, was in the kitchen and came out to talk to me. He sat next to me, told me how strong I was, and I had the biggest balls he'd ever seen as this was the second dad he'd had not want him, and he never was able to speak up. Having to shoot down excuses for abusive behavior at the ripe age of 18 was pretty awful, but having a loving moment with my older brother because of it was incredible. That's really beautiful. That that to me is like life condensed down into those moments of connection and feeling seen and supported. And this to me is a perfect example of loving someone in a way that isn't enmeshed. He didn't try to, the brother didn't try to control the relationship with the father. He didn't try to save her from it or change her in some way. He just loved her. He just loved her. And that is, that's love with boundaries and, ah, thank you. Tweedledee, Tweedlekill me, shares uh, about his depression. Depression is the most comfortable thing I've ever encountered. Being in bed all day, wrapped in covers, doing nothing is my idea of a perfect day off. Minus the soul-scraping agony of the loneliness and wanting to put an axe through my head because I'm just a useless waste of life, of course. None of us can relate to that. snapshot from his life. 
Uh, he writes, less of a snapshot and more a collection of moments. I'm at, oh, and this is the reason I wanted to read yours after the previous survey by the one where I was uh, bringing up the topic of enmeshment. And uh, he writes, I met a girl last week and essentially fell in love. Same thing happened about two weeks ago and the week before that, and pretty much every few weeks going back as far as I can remember. I go from feeling nothing to everything and always sabotage myself by falling too hard, too fast, scaring her away, hating myself, rinsing, and repeating. It's a vicious cycle I've noticed in my life. And it's classic. It bears the hallmarks of classic fear of intimacy, intimacy, sex and love addiction, slash codependency, slash enmeshments, and objectifying looking for someone to fill something in you that can never be filled by a person, place, or thing, only through self-love and self-care and, you know, perhaps uh, some type of spiritual component in your life, volunteer work or uh, stuff like that. But none of that, I think, can completely completely fill that. I, I think we need to work on this shit in multiple, multiple ways. At least that's been my experience. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself the Had Matter. He is straight in his 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment, ever been the, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. He writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, at a friend's house when I was three or four, a girl my age brought me into the bathroom with her and had me kiss her privates. She then put me in her mouth, I think. It's a fuzzy memory. I remember her wanting me to pee inside of her, but I chickened out and peed in the toilet nearby. After that moment, I went on to recreate the oral with other boys in daycare and at my home. I remember vaguely being caught by my mom, not sure what the reaction was. Darkest thoughts. Cheating on my wife, emailing porn to my wife, punching my kids, giving my wife anal while she is sleeping. Darkest secrets. I watch porn sometimes and lie to my wife about it. Uh, fantasies most powerful to you. Blowjobs, all locations, and women. Just laying there and receiving that pleasure until I come. She doesn't pull away, but continues through the orgasm until it hurts to keep going. Uh, slow anal penetration with my wife. She's not interested, but I hope we try someday. Uh, my wife watching porn would be life-changing, I think. This being held over me is unbearable. Um, I don't think your wife watching porn with you would necessarily be life-changing because whether or not you watch porn together with your partner, it can it can certainly bring a level of intimacy or um, perhaps a divisiveness between you. You won't find out in, in, unless you do it, but what watching porn with somebody who has never watched porn with you is not going to rescue a relationship. And I think there's a lot more going on here than whether or not your wife wants to, wants to watch porn. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? So many things to so many people. I fear the judgment of my wife and rejection slash betrayal slash gossip 
from those I speak to. Mainly, I want to ask for a complete blowjob and permission to watch what I want to watch. To which I want to say, you don't need permission to watch what you want to watch. You are an adult and your wife, it's up to her whether she wants to accept you as you are or for you to decide whether or not it's a deal breaker for you. But you're kind of living in a limbo fantasy where you're neither of you are dealing with the elephant in the room, which is her wanting to have ownership over what you do in private. Married people should be able to masturbate on their own doing what they want to do, assuming it's not something illegal or something where they're blowing you know, money from a joint bank account or they're sapping the energy that could be going into their relationship because they're engaging in something that's compulsive or uh, takes their brain out of the present moment when you're around each other. Um, but it, it sounds like those other two surveys and that there's enmeshment and codependency going on here. And there is um, a kind of little kid quality to your views on marriage, at least to your wife. And um, I think if you guys went to joint counseling, that might be a good way to to air this out and get an objective opinion from if it's a good therapist that has a healthy modern view of sexuality. Um, but these, these are my thoughts based on my values and my opinions, and I'm sure there are people that disagree with it, but um, what, if anything, do you wish for? Unconditional acceptance and love from my wife. Strong bonds with my kids so they come to me for important events or decisions. Guilt-free alone time. Well, I can tell you this much. If you can make decisions yourself, you can model decisions for your kids. But if you are an example of someone who is afraid to make decisions and looks to the partner to tell them what is right and wrong, um, that that's not a great role model for your kids when it comes to listening to your intuition and claiming ownership of your body and your not saying you want to bring your kids in on this particular subject, but I'm, I'm kind of picturing your relationship with your wife that you are looking for permission from her in ways beyond this. I very much get the, the feeling like almost like she's the mother and you're the little boy. Um, and I apologize if I'm completely mischaracterizing that, but it's my show. 
Uh, have you shared these things with others? After 14 years of me keeping it secret, I told my wife I watch porn once a week and use it to masturbate when I'm out of town. She said, what the hell? I told you never to look at a naked woman and then you do this behind my back. Cheater. She kicked me out of our house for a couple of months. She gave me an ultimatum of no nudity ever or no wife. I gave in despite it destroying me inside. Uh, telling my wife I want unconditional acceptance got a quick, quote, not happening response. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Sad and hopeless. Uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? How do you do it? I feel so trapped. I know there are a lot of couples that feel this way, and it's a very complicated subject because you don't want your partner to not feel close to you, but what about you feeling close to you? As cheesy as it sounds, if you can't be close to yourself and listen to your instincts and claim very reasonable rights about your body and your desires and your needs, um, it's how, how do you have something left over to give to somebody in a healthy, non-codependent, enmeshed way? Um, but th that's one of the reasons I wanted to read your survey is because so many of these issues are so nuanced and complicated and then you, you know, maybe religion enters into it or her past, maybe, maybe she was sexually violated by someone that looked at pornography or, Somebody spied on her when she was naked or something and is triggering shit in her that she needs compassion for. If, if, if this doesn't get aired out in a way where both people can share their truth in a neutral, objective environment, which I th think you both need because you're really far away on this, on this topic and you both seem kind of entrenched. Um, and there, it's also possible there's, there is a sex addiction going on with you that is based in childhood trauma and that trauma needs to be processed maybe with the MDR or again, all of this stuff. I'm a jackass that cooked chicken on basic cable for 16 years. I toured around telling dick jokes, talked to a therapist but I don't think I'm that off base. Could I have said that more pompously? Let me try it again. I don't think I'm that off base. Oh my God, so that's where mean DJ voice came from. And then finally, this is a beautiful thing that I got from a shame and secret survey from a uh, woman who calls herself, uh, for a nickname, you can call me Liz. And she is gay. She's in her 30s. She was raised in a stable and safe environment. And I wanted to read 
read this part. This is the part that, that really moved me. Uh, what are your darkest thoughts? She writes, I know this isn't dark, but it's troubled me my whole life. Ever since I was a closeted lesbian teenager, I've had massive crushes on much older women. It was normal for 16-year-old girls to lust after dreamy George Clooney or whatever, but I knew better than to open my mouth about my crushes on women like Helen Mirren, Joan Cusack, Catherine Deneuve, and my English teacher. They were and are beautiful and brilliant but they didn't look like the young, quote, hot girls that guys my age liked, which really confused me. I didn't have the knowledge at the time to understand that what young men think or want means nothing when it comes to who I'm allowed to be attracted to, and that it's a ridiculous double standard that young women are almost expected to have crushes on older guys, but young queer girls have no outlet or support for their crushes on older ladies. Now that I'm in my mid-30s, life is grand because the women I date are the same age as the women I used to fantasize about, and I finally feel satisfied. Maybe I was just attracted to a certain kind of maturity. Who knows? But I've yet to admit to anyone that I have always had this specific soft spot for middle-aged women. In my head, I know it's unnecessary for me to keep this a secret any longer, but in my heart, when I think about telling anyone at all, I feel the weight of this heteropatriarchal world making me feel ashamed like a teenager all over again and crushing any courage that I might find to live as my authentic self. When the movie Carol came out in 2015, I went to go see it by myself, which felt a little weird, but thank God that I did because I sobbed in the back of the theater for half the movie. It was the first time that I saw myself on screen out in the open. Watching young Therese, I don't know if it's Therese or Teresa, uh, Bellevet, Bellevet, fall, I saw the movie and I still don't know how to pronounce their names, fall for the sexy and enigmatic middle-aged Carol Aird gave me so much hope. Enough people cared about this narrative to make it into a magnificent film and I hope there will be more like it. P.S. It also helps that Kate Blanchett was another one of my teenage crushes. I leave you with a hilarious little thing that I read on Tumblr, which also makes me feel less alone since it's been reblogged thousands of times. Quote, if hot middle-aged women not being appreciated by the average middle-aged men in their lives need to feel good about themselves, they should just walk into a room full of 15 to 25-year-old queer girls and see their reaction, unquote. If only I'd turned to the internet when I was in that age bracket. Um, that is just so... Uh, thank you for giving us a peek into your soul. Uh, I live for, for reading surveys like this um it not only because it helps me feel more in tuned with people but the feeling that you might hear me read this and feel seen or heard uh is a is a really good feeling because I know when I've seen parts of myself in a movie 
that I felt ashamed of. And I see an actor pouring his heart into a role and portraying battles that I've battled. It's such, it feels like such a hug that, that like somebody said, I care enough about your voice being heard that I'm going to spend six months of my life figuring out how to best bring this person to life because your voice is worth hearing. And it, uh, I, I, I broke down one time um, at the end of a movie for that exact reason that, that you said um and it was it was um the movie thanks for sharing because i have battled addictions with sex and love and i've always felt such shame about it and seeing the passion that people put into that movie i've always felt deep down that I'm dirty and almost like a piece of society's moral refuse and seeing the passion that some of the people in that movie gave it and knowing that they gave six months of their lives made me feel seen I feel seen in my support groups because I know that we share that struggle but when someone from outside of that looks in with compassion it's an incredibly incredibly touching feeling, which is one of the reasons transphobia, homophobia, racism is so baffling to me. I understand a lot of us have a certain baseline ignorance ingrained in us, but I'm talking more about just dismissal um, and writing people off as weird or monstrous or whatever and um your your survey just moved me so much and the thought that a young queer person or any queer person hearing this will feel less alone um just it's why i one of the reasons i love doing this show um, and the last thing she wrote, uh, last two things, how do you feel after writing these things down? I feel both sadness and joy that we as a society have taken some steps towards talking about these things out in the open, but there is obviously so much farther that we need to go. Any comments to make the podcast better? 
Nope, I love this podcast. Thank you. I hope you might consider reading what I wrote on the podcast only because it might help a young queer girl out there feel less alone. I know I would have cherished that. Yeah, and if I ever get the chance to meet Mark Ruffalo, I'm going to ask him for a hug because his portrayal of um, someone battling intimacy struggles, sex addiction, was so compassionate. The opening of the movie, he is on his knees praying to God. And the look on his face, you know that he, as an actor, is praying to God. It's the look on his face is the, is the, face that I make when I pray in the morning. There, there's like a scrunched forehead because I'm pleading for help every morning because I need it, because I need help. And I can't ever assume that I can overcome my struggles by myself. And just that gesture of, of his, his brow furrowed as he prays, it was just, it was so, I, I immediately knew that he had done his research and it doesn't matter what the addiction is. If, if it's somebody that struggles with food or shoplifting or gambling or whatever, it's that feeling of hopelessness and that you're different and that if anybody really knew you, they wouldn't love you and that's one of the reasons why when I pray to the universe or God or whatever it is that has been helping me for these years, it, it is the, the, the prayer of a man on a life raft. And I'm so glad that I found ways to stay on this beautiful life raft that I live on. For anybody that lives with an addiction, uh, or like me, multiple addictions, we need to remind ourselves every day that it is not a given that we're not going to go get drunk or shoot drugs or look at porn for eight hours. Um, and I guess all of this is to say and I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but if there is a struggle that someone has that you don't understand, the most patriotic thing that you can do, the, the most loving thing that you can do is to listen to that person and not try to change them. 
but just help them feel seen and heard and let them know that they are, they are valid and that they matter. And, um, wow, I got, I got all emotional. I'd forgotten about that, um, that Mark Ruffalo performance and thanks for sharing. I think a lot of people who watch that movie, uh, who don't understand addiction won't get how profound the emotional portrayal of stuff is in that um, because the it's not necessarily the details of someone's acting out or battles with a particular substance. It's the emotional toll, the chaos, the inner turmoil. Um, now I feel like I've talked too much. You guys get the fuck out of here. Thank you um, for letting me ramble. Actually, I don't know if you did. You might have turned the podcast off, in which case, uh, those of you that are still here, can we agree? Fuck those other people. Uh, I hope you heard something that either helped you feel better or enlightened you or was entertaining or um just distracted you from something that you're struggling with. And I hope your takeaway from it is that you're not alone and that there, there is always help there. It's just a matter of, of finding it. And um, I so appreciate all the support uh, from you guys because I get to do, I get to paddle around on my beautiful life raft and, uh, and I love it. And now I'm a little embarrassed about that metaphor or analogy. And now I'm embarrassed that I don't know if it's a metaphor or analogy. So I'm going to sign off. Go fuck yourself. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely